Okay, everyone, welcome to episode 83, I think it is. This episode is going to be, well, as you've seen on the title, Am I the Red Flag? Like, am I the drama? This is, I've had a lot of questions from people when I talk about red flags in a relationship or red flags in a friendship. A lot of people say, what do you do if you think that you're the one with the red flags? So I'm going to be talking I'm going to be giving you around 10 or 11 examples of red flags if you are the one doing the red flags. And I'm going to be giving you little tools and tricks on what you can do to kind of stop that behavior or curb that behavior um, to just be a little bit more aware. Yes, 100%. You can also use this episode to see if your partner is doing kind of the red flag thing. So you can kind of turn it around and look at it as if you're on the receiving end. But the difference between this episode versus my other red flag episodes is that I'm talking to you from a perspective as someone who can actually do something about it and change it versus someone who's on the receiving end who can't do much to change somebody else's behaviors or actions unless that person wants to change. Okay. So that is the difference. But of course, you can look at it from both angles in this episode. Now, what else? What else before we get into the episode? I'll just, I guess I'll go into a weekly update. So today is, oh, you guys are listening to this on the 11th. I'm recording this just the day prior. So super excited. One day until I can actually, you know, we're kind of, a lot of the restrictions in Sydney are being lifted. And for me, yeah, okay, obviously I'm thrilled to be able to go out and have a drink at a bar or a restaurant. But the the main things that are exciting me about this is number one, being able to go outside of my 5K radius so I can actually see my relatives. Um, And number two, the fact that you can have like friends and family over. So that's like the main ones for me that I'm so excited about. So tomorrow my cousin Giselle is picking me up early in the morning and we slash you're listening to this today and we are going straight to my auntie and uncle's place. Like my auntie and uncle are like my second parents. My parents live in Queensland. So fuck knows when I'll be able to see them, but we're going to be spending the whole day. We'll sleep over there. It's going to be amazing. I cannot wait to see my family. Like we are, as you guys know, I've spoken about this so much. We're very, very tight. So that's been like the most infuriating thing about the lockdown is just not being able to see my family. So very excited about that. And then separate to that, this week I also found out, my publisher told me that Be Bold has officially become a bestseller. So thank you to all you guys for going out, purchasing the book. I really, really appreciate it. I have got a lot of messages from people that are not in Australia of where you can purchase the book because I know that as far as who stocks the book, it's only really stocked as far as bookstores. It's stocked in Australia, which is like Dimex, Big W, Kmart, a lot of other bookstores as well. Um, And if you are international, I know that you can get the book from the book depository online. The only problem with the book depository is that shipping times might be a bit slow, but that is the best place to get it if you're um, buying the book internationally. Unfortunately, I do not stock the book. It is not my product to stock. So that it's because it's through a publisher, if that makes sense. So it's not something that I can myself ship to people because I don't actually does that make sense? Like I don't actually like have any of the books in stock and I haven't bought the books, you know, and paid for the manufacturing of the book. So I can't actually then go on and sell them. And if I was going to do it, I'd weirdly have to then buy all these books and then sell them. And I feel like I just wouldn't have the, um, the resources to do so at least at this stage. So that is where you could get them. Now, before we get into the topic of today, I thought I'd do a little fun pharmacology fact and I would wanted to talk about how 
um, aspirin, ibuprofen, and paracetamol work and how they all work a little bit differently. Well, aspirin and ibuprofen work similar and then um, paracetamol works a little bit differently. If you're in the US, I believe paracetamol is referred to as acetaminophen, not paracetamol. And paracetamol is outside of the US. That's like the main drug name um, as far as English-speaking countries, obviously. So let's quickly break down kind of the pain pathway and how um, pain and sensations are perceived. So sensation as far as touch Temperature and pain is perceived in a section of your brain called the cortex. The cortex is the outer surface of the brain, like the top few, like millimeters of the brain. And it's like that outer, the, the very, uh, that wrinkly outer layer. And there's a particular section of the cortex called the somatosensory cortex. And this cortex is divided into areas that represent different parts of the body. So areas that are really sensitive take up more space on this cortex versus areas that are not sensitive. So for example, your elbow or your forearm would take up much less space than your tongue, your hands and fingers, your genitals, all of that would take up way more space because of course they're way more sensitive, okay? And really interestingly, just on a side note, they did this study, kind of cruel, but anyway, they did this study on monkeys where they sewed the two like two fingers together and that space between the two fingers where normally they would be getting a lot of sensation and perception because they're now stitched together and not getting any touch or sensation to them that actual part of the cortex that corresponds to the area of the monkey's hands or fingers um literally blended together so the cortex and that just shows how plastic the brain is how, how it's always molding and remolding to adapt to what is occurring um that disappeared and then when they unstitched the fingers and obviously it healed that part of the cortex then returned to represent the map of that section of the monkey's hands back on that part of the cortex in the brain so that's just a random interesting side fact now separate to that your brain has sorry your body has pain receptors that are called nociceptors and they only fire if something is causing damage or could be causing damage. So you generally start, of course, with a feeling. So it could be pressure. It could be like a light pinch. It could just be touch and that's not painful. And then when it reaches, like it, it has to cross a threshold, as in it's too much pressure or it's just too much heat, that it then becomes painful. And that pain threshold can be altered with different chemicals or you know different things. But we're, we're talking about chemicals today. Now, prostaglandins, which I'll explain in a little bit, prostaglandins get released and those are essential for pain perception and pain mediation and inflammation and all of that. So this pain signal, let's say, let's say it's in your hand, this pain signal travels through what's called a first order neuron from the site of the pain. So the nociceptor, which is at the end of the, the neuron where you've got your receptors to feel whatever it is, that sensation, whether it's pain or what heat or whatever, it goes through that first order neuron from the skin to the spinal cord. And this action potential, which is like the the signal for it to fire, is triggered by this prostaglandin, which I just mentioned. That causes the action potential. It makes its way, it travels to the spinal cord. It then synapses, like it, it fires another neuron to a second order neuron. That neuron then crosses over to the other side of the spinal cord. I'm going to do a whole section on another time of why all the nerves cross over in the spinal cord as most especially 
you know, all the sensory nerves cross over the spinal cord and make their way up to the brain. So it crosses over the spinal cord and it goes all the way up through the brainstem into an area of the brain called the thalamus. And this thalamus is a major relay center within the brain. There's a lot of synapses that occur here. It then activates the third order neuron, which then takes it up to the cortex. And that is then how you become consciously aware of where in the body you are feeling that pain. Now, aspirin and ibuprofen block these prostaglandins, okay? So what is a prostaglandin? When a cell is damaged or it's reaching that threshold of being damaged, like excessive heat or excessive pressure, these cells start to release something called arachidonic acid. And there are these enzymes which are called cyclooxygenase 1 and cyclooxygenase 2. I'm going to refer to them as COX-1 and COX-2. They convert this arachidonic acid to something called prostaglandin H2. Then prostaglandin H2 then converts into a whole bunch of other chemicals which then alter like body temperature, they cause inflammation and they can lower the pain threshold. So something that might not normally hurt then becomes really, really painful or sensitive, okay? So like I said, aspirin and ibuprofen block those prostaglandins which cause all these side effects within the body or within the skin or within you know that area of, of that site of pain. Now, those enzymes that convert arachidonic into prostaglandins, they all these enzymes, they have an active site. So it's a site where things can bind so that way a reaction can occur. Both enzymes, both these cyclooxygenase one, COX-1 and COX-2 have this active site. It's like a pocket and arachidonic acid fits quite snugly into that pocket to activate it. So then you can have all these like side effects and um, aspirin and ibuprofen both act on this site. Now they're both slightly different. Aspirin, and I have spoken about aspirin in a different episode, but I'll quickly recap on it in a sec. But aspirin, it's like a spike, like a, like a imagine like a needle or a little stick and it enters the site like a little spike and it gets stuck into that pocket and snaps off in half. And half of it stays in that site and it's like pierced into that site of the enzyme. So it's now blocking anything else from entering. Therefore, that arachidonic acid can't fit into that pocket. It can't enter and therefore it cannot activate it. So then you can't get the production of prostaglandins, okay? So when it happens with aspirin, that the, the COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes become permanently deactivated, okay? It's like a covalent bond. And I spoke about this in another episode. A covalent bond is an irreversible bond, okay? So in this scenario, you have to wait for that cell to turn over as in to be like remade um, before something else can act upon it. It is an unbreakable bond. And that's why when you overdose on aspirin, you can have all these problems because if you have too much of the action of aspirin, then you get like your blood gets way too thin and then you have problems with like your heart pumping properly and then you can, as we all know, if you have too much of aspirin, you can actually die and it's irreversible, okay? That's a covalent bond. Ibuprofen, however, still enters that site, but it doesn't get stuck in it. It doesn't pierce into that site. It doesn't snap off. It just kind of sits in that pocket. Like it just kind of lands like a grain in that pocket. So it's still blocking it, you know, like arachidonic acid still can't fit into the site, but the cyclooxygenase 1 and 2 can spit it out at a later stage, okay? So as long as the ibuprofen is sitting in that activation site, arachidonic acid can't enter and it can't bind and the effects of the painkiller 
last as long as the ibuprofen can sit in that site without it being bumped out. And there's many factors as to why it gets bumped out or when it doesn't. I'm not going to go into that. Now, these are not selective, okay? They don't know where the pain is. They, when you take aspirin or where you take ibuprofen, they go to any area where there is pain as well as where there is not pain. They just go everywhere, okay? So there was this whole thing on like, you know, all those brands that were releasing like special painkillers for back pain, special painkillers for, you know, period pain or neck pain or headaches. It's fucking stupid and ridiculous and it was actually quite dangerous because there were people that, imagine if you had headache, and period pain and back pain and someone who wasn't aware that painkillers don't work that way, you might be taking, you know, triple of a dose of something that's going to act the same way on all the areas. So it's actually quite dangerous and these companies got sued for promoting it that way. Now you're going to notice that when you go to a pharmacy, you're not going to see those anymore. And if you do see them, that's fucking illegal and they should not be doing that at all. Then we've got paracetamol or in the U.S., acetaminophen okay this is so the other two are considered aspirin and ibuprofen are considered non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs okay this is also kind of considered a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug but it actually has little to no anti-inflammatory effects Um, it can be broken down to form all these active compounds such as like a painkiller effect and it can reduce fever and increase that pain threshold, but it only weakly inhibits the cyclooxygenase enzyme that does produce prostaglandins like COX-1 and COX-2, which do lead to pain and inflammation. So it's actually the mechanism of action with paracetamol is not as clearly understood in pharmacology as well as aspirin and ibuprofen is. They think that it acts higher up within that order of, you know, first, second and third order neurons, okay? Um, But it's not a substitute for inflammatory responses and treatment of inflammation. You want to be using anti-inflammatory drugs to treat inflammation, not a paracetamol, okay? But it is suggested that it can inhibit something called COX-3, which is a different cyclooxygenase altogether, more so in the brain and the central nervous system, which leads to these painkiller effects, okay? So this is why when you look at Um, painkiller effects, especially for people that are maybe asthmatics or children, you're more likely to try paracetamol first instead of something that has anti-inflammatory effects because anti-inflammatory effects can also have, you know, uh, side effects which can thin your blood quite a bit and all of that. And that might not be necessary in a lot of cases, especially for children and asthmatics as a whole, like there's a whole gamut of problems that can occur with, you know, I apparently am allergic, I'm an asthmatic and apparently in an allergy test I did, I shouldn't really be taking um, aspirin and it's just not great for asthmatics. I can't, I, I'm going to look into that as to why specifically for asthmatics that's the case, but that just explains why you should be choosing certain painkillers over other painkillers. Anyway, that's my little kind of spiel, my pharmacology spiel. I kind of love pharmacology. So I thought I'd go into that and explain a little bit about the difference between those painkillers. Also, that's why sometimes a doctor might suggest that you take, you know, half a dose of an ibuprofen and half a dose of a paracetamol because they do act slightly differently. So sometimes you are going to get a better um, analgesic, which is a painkiller response, okay, Um, because they act on slightly different sites. Um, Yeah. Anyway, so let's get into the topic of today, which is, am I the red flag? What I'm going to do is I'm going to break it down into roughly, um, I think it's 10, maybe 11, and I'm going to be explaining what they are. And then I'm going to give you ideas or kind of like 
maybe hacks of what you can do if you think that you are the red flag or you have you are presenting with these red flags in a relationship. Number one, do you compete with other people's pain? Do you overplay being a victim? As in, people can't talk about anything because you've always had it worse. You always downplay what someone else has gone through because yours was worse. Like you're competing with other people's pain or other people's trauma because it's got to be all about you. When this happens, even if you do feel like your situation was worse, if you do that to somebody, especially your partner, you are devaluing what that person feels and you are letting that person know that you're not actually there for them and it's always about you. So there's kind of like, it's almost like a power play, like I am more important than you because you don't know what I'm going through. You have to understand that everyone has a different threshold of what pain is to them, emotional pain, and everyone's going to perceive emotional situations differently. So while in your opinion and your experiences, you might feel that you've gone through something so much worse, a good partner has to listen and understand and pay attention to what their partner is going through and acknowledge it. And you can, and they're, they're two completely independent things. You have to acknowledge that what they're going through doesn't take away from what you went through. You still have to be there for them and acknowledge it. So never look at when someone's suffering or gone through something, it's not a threat saying that they've had it worse than you. It's an individual isolated event and you have to be able to separate the two. If you're always competing with someone's pain and wanting to be the victim in every situation, you are pushing that person away and you are making that person want to go to you less and less when they are in their hour of need or when they need to open up to you or you know explain something that they're going through. They feel like they're not going to be like that you devalue what they're talking about and they feel like you perceive them to be below them. So it's quite a toxic trait to have. Okay. Like for example, when I was going through, and this could like a big one is like heartbreak. Okay. Um, This is with friends. When I was going through one of like my big heartbreaks, I was really suffering. And my friend of mine was also going through a heartbreak as well. And I remember her saying to me that she said to me, you know what? And I was really suffering. And she said to me, you know, my breakup is just so much worse than yours. Like you actually have it so much easier because at least your ex doesn't hate you and mine does. So it's so much harder for me and you're, you know, you're lucky. And I felt like, I feel like I can't even talk to you about this anymore because I was really suffering. I was really giving you the time and energy and empathy and I was trying to be there for you, but then you turn around and say, oh, it's easy for you. I'm the one that's suffering. So then I felt like I'm trying to be your support while I'm suffering, but you're not willing to be my support. So then I'm less inclined to want to then open up to that person again in the future, if that makes sense. Okay, number two, do you bring up irrelevant things from the past to strengthen your argument so you can make someone feel guilty so they don't have a leg to stand on in that argument. For example, if you're dating someone and your partner has lied to you about something in the past and then you're arguing about something else altogether, it's not relevant to that lie that that your partner did, but you feel that you're losing the argument, you know, someone who has like a red flag is if you then turn it around and say, well, at least I don't lie, okay, that you're kind of – you're derailing the argument and you're you're teaching your partner that you can't have a civil conversation about something that needs to be solved within the relationship. You cannot be bringing up irrelevant shit from the past if your partner was in the wrong to strengthen your argument because that is 
completely, um, you're hijacking the conversation and you literally turn it around. And in that moment, your partner feels very attacked and they feel like they can't defend themselves because they have done something wrong in the past. And then they feel like, oh, okay, are we bringing up the past again? What are we talking about now? Are we talking about this or are we talking about the past? And are you actually, like, you said you were over the past, but now you're not, you're bringing it up again. It's a very unhealthy thing. If you, if you feel the need to bring up something in the past that your partner did because you're not over it. You need to do that in isolation. You need to do that independently. You need to approach your partner at a time where it's not relevant to a fight and say, listen, I'm actually struggling with what happened in the past. Um, I feel like we need to talk about it again because I want us to be good, but I need to talk about it. If you're not willing to do that, then you absolutely cannot be bringing it up in an argument at a later stage just to strengthen your argument when you think that you're losing out. You can't use it as, as ammunition. That's extremely unfair and you are kind of hijacking that situation. It's, it's very toxic. Another personal example that I can give you, my ex, every time we would argue about something, so I, I had this like um, trip booked to LA. I had the green card and I had to go to LA to kind of validate the green card and I had to be there for a minimum of three months. And most people in a normal relationship would be like, yeah, okay, you can do three months long distance. It's not a problem, whatever. But he took it as a personal stab. He always looked at it as you're abandoning me, you're abandoning me. So separate to that, every time we would have a disagreement or an argument or whatever prior to that, he would derail it by always saying, well, you're leaving me for LA. So why does it matter? Why does it matter? He devalued anything I would try and bring up by saying, why should I care? You're leaving me for LA. So see how that's completely bringing up something irrelevant to strengthen his argument. And it has nothing to do with what we were arguing. And he was trying to make me feel guilty. So I didn't continue the argument. So then that was his way of winning by default. It's very unhealthy. Number three, do you character assassinate when you are in disagreement with each other? That, again, very unhealthy, toxic, and that could be perceived as verbal or emotional abuse. When you are arguing, stick to the facts. Stick to things that were said or done or not done, okay? Do not then say, you're fucked in the head, you're a fucking idiot, you're this, you're that. Like, that is character assassination and you're literally belittling that person and you're attacking things about who they are as a person instead of attacking what they did or what they said or, you know, something that's specific to their actions that have caused you to be upset. Character assassination can get out of hand and that's where things can get really kind of emotionally manipulative or abusive. So always check in with yourself when you're having a disagreement with someone. You can still say what you want to say about what that person did. Still share everything that you feel, but don't get into that trap of calling them names and putting them as a person and who they their personality, dragging them down into the mud. That's That's very hurtful and that person will then shut off and shut down. So your ability to have a rich conversation gets killed when you do that. Don't character assassinate. Number four, when you're arguing, do you get so excessively offended when they bring up something that they're not happy with or something that you did that they would like to discuss that they wish you didn't do or whatever? Do you get so offended and is your ego so bruised that your response to that, instead of saying, 
you got me, let's talk about it, I shouldn't have done that or this is why I did it, let's make this a conversation. Instead of that, is your response to then shut the other person off because you're so offended and punish them for opening up to you and being vulnerable about something within the relationship. If you do that, that is a red flag. You are saying, if you bring something up to me about something I've done, you suffer because I shut you out. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to be so offended. And then you're going to think that you're in the wrong because you hurt my feelings for telling me something that I did to you. Okay. You have to create an open space with your partner or your friends or your family where they feel comfortable as long as they're being respectful, where they feel comfortable to raise issues with you. That is the only way you're going to get closer with someone. That's the only way you're going to have a truly successful relationship. If you can respectfully pull each other up on things and have a discussion about it. Okay. Some of the best, a, a great relationship isn't a relationship that never has a disagreement or never has a discussion. A great relationship is a relationship where both parties can come to the table, no matter who's in the wrong. Okay, because that means you can grow together. You learn to understand each other so much more and you respect each other so much more. I know it's not nice. Nobody likes to be pulled up on their shit. Nobody likes to be told that they were wrong or that you hurt them. But if you can just sit with it for a moment, take a breath and then talk about it, you're going to have massive growth within your relationship. Do not switch off and shut that person off because then you turn it around and make it as if that they're in the wrong for bringing something up which is natural to do if they care about you. If they didn't give a fuck about you, they wouldn't bring it up or they're terrified of bringing it up. Both of those situations are bad, okay? Don't create a situation where they never want to pull you up on any of your flaws because then you're doomed to failure. Number five, do you milk an opportunity when someone has done something wrong to you, when your partner, for example, has done something wrong to you, do you see how much you can get from them? In other words, you put that person in a position of begging or crawling back to you for a prolonged period of time. That idea of, you know, you're trying to shift the dynamic to say, you better beg for my forgiveness. You better do things where you are begging for my forgiveness. Crawl for my forgiveness. Nothing you do is good enough. No repair that you attempt is going to satisfy me. I suffered, so now you you should suffer tenfold. That's a problem. If the if the issue is not resolved and you are in that situation where you are demanding that they beg and beg and beg for your forgiveness, you need to talk about it. You need to stop and talk about it and say, I'm not happy with these things. I just, maybe I, the reason I'm still so upset is because I fear that you're going to do it again. Can we discuss it? Maybe the reason why I'm so upset is because I fear that you maybe haven't seen my side of, of of the issue and I'm worried that you just don't respect how I feel about it. like that. These are things that you need to talk about, but for you to just always be like, no, nah, no, nah, not good enough, not good enough. No, nah, don't want to talk to you. No, nah, don't want to see you tonight. No, 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 no. And that person's constantly begging, begging again. You're doing this thing where you're trying to shift the dynamic. You're trying to be in a position of power. You should never aim to be in a position of power over your partner. Red flag. Instead, like I said, talk about it. If you feel that that's your initial reaction, you need to pause. You can even say to your partner, look, just give me, give me the afternoon. I don't want to, I don't want this to like extend on. Give me the afternoon. I just need to regroup my thoughts. Can we talk about this later tonight? Just even that, just even communicating across it. You're trying to get your head around what happened. You've already chosen to forgive them, but you can't then keep stretching it out to see how much you can get from them. So if you need time out to figure out how you feel, Express that to them. Say, I need, I need the afternoon. Let's talk tonight. 
And then at nighttime, you can then say, like, if you're not over it, you say, this is why I'm not over it. I don't think you heard me or I don't think that, you know, you you see the severity of it or I feel you're going to do it again. And what can we put into place so we're both comfortable with this moving forward? That's what you need to do instead. Number six, this is a fucking obvious one. Do you check up on your partner as far as their devices, stalking them online, seeing if they are where they said that they would be, making them give you a detailed outline of what they're doing with their day, location, times, with who, when, all of that. That's not fair. You have to you have to allow that person to live their life. You have to allow that person to have spontaneity in their life. You can't be like, oh, you told me you were going to go there today and then I find out that you're having coffee with this person today. You lied. No. They didn't necessarily lie. They're just living their fucking spontaneous life and something might have come up where they decided to change their mind. People are entitled to change their mind. People are entitled to have a life that's outside of you, okay? If you're so terrified that that they're going to do something where they're cheating on you or where they're lying behind your back or whatever, then there's other problems there. That's just This is just a symptom of an underlying problem. You don't trust them for a reason and that needs to be addressed. But if you're constantly checking up on them because you don't trust them for no good reason, then you are – that's a red flag. You are the drama in this situation, okay, and vice versa. Nobody I, – I hate, hate the concept of checking up on your partner and checking each other's phones. Like – Tyrone and I have the passcodes to each other's phone because we're always playing each other's music when we're in the car and this and that. But I could gladly leave my phone unlocked and go and have a shower and know for a fact to the core of my soul that Tyrone would never look through my phone. Just like he's done many times. He's left his phone with me and gone for ages. And I've not had the slightest remote idea in my head to want to check his phone and go through it okay because trust comes with that you should never be you know trawling through people's things if you don't trust someone and you keep going into these avenues of like I need to check up on you I need to check up on you you're going to make that feeling worse for yourself because whether that person is faithful or not you're not going to care because if you're someone that's ingrained in this, I need to check, I need to check, you're never, you're never going to be satisfied. That validation that you feel in that moment where you check the messages and none of it proved that they were cheating on you. So you're like, oh, that relief is so temporary, so temporary. And then you're going to keep searching for something, it's that confirmation bias. If you are primed to think, I need to check on you because you might be cheating on me or you might be lying to me. If you are primed to feel that way, then you are going to search for things that prove your thought process. So checking their phone once will never fix the problem for you. You need to stop doing that. And if you genuinely, genuinely in your head, you're like, you are cheating on me, should you even be with that person in the first place? Whether you prove it or not, should you be in a relationship like that? No. But one thing I can guarantee you, checking is not going to solve the problem. It's going to make it worse. That person's going to feel like they're always being looked onto and they're, you know, walking on eggshells all the time. Very uncomfortable for your partner. And from your end, very uncomfortable because that tactic never works and it makes you trust that person less and less no matter how many times you get confirmation that they're doing the right thing because you turn into someone that is trying to seek proof that you are right. It is an awful thing to do and you need to stop doing it. You need to purge that out of your system and stop immediately. And if you can't stop, question why you are in a relationship, not just with this person, but in a relationship in general. You've got some self-love issues that you need to work through. And like on a side note, I saw this like meme on Instagram and I actually hated it. And it was this thing of like this guy, like it was like this weird conversation where this guy 
um, walked in and noticed that his girl was his girlfriend was checking on his phone, and instead of getting angry, I think they were trying to make it this really romantic thing. Instead of get, getting angry, he's like, "Here, babe, check my phone. You know, I care about you. I understand that you might not trust me. Check my phone to see that I'm not doing anything." No, cunt, you are enabling this fear-based mentality. I agree that you shouldn't. Um, hoard your phone and guard it with your life and what and be sus because yeah 100% that looks sus it's like oh why 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 do you flip your phone upside down in front of, I understand that there's sus behaviors that can be associated with that don't get me wrong I get it however if someone's checking on your phone and your response is like oh no it's fine look through it it's fine you are saying your behavior of constantly checking is now validated I am letting you do that I am letting you not trust me even though I trust you that's very toxic, very toxic. If, if I saw Tyrone searching through my text messages, I would be like, what is the issue here? What do you need to ask me? What do you need to talk about? And where is this coming from? Because I've not done anything to, to show you that I'm not faithful. So for you to go behind my back and start reading my text messages, which might be private and for different reasons, it might be about a conversation with someone that's just between me and that person. It's just not okay to do that. Okay. You, you just because you're dating, it doesn't mean that you can have insight into every fucking aspect of that person's life, just so you can prove that they're being faithful to you. Ridiculous, ridiculous. Number seven, do you make people earn your trust based on the fact that people in your past broke it. So say you were cheated on in the past and now you enter a relationship and you say, oh, I'm scorned. My walls are up. You've got to work to bring my walls down. My walls are up. It's, you know, it's not someone's responsibility to bring your walls down unless that person was the one that cheated on you in the first place. Then yes, you can work on that together. But this is why I'm such an advocate for finding your happiness before you enter a second relationship or your next relationship. When you have a breakup, especially if it's because there was infidelity or whatever, you should ideally, I understand that there are circumstances where you might meet a person and you don't, whatever. But ideally, you want to be having this washout period in between relationships where you build your self-worth and your self-value up again, where you can be the cause of your own happiness again. When you discover that you can be truly happy alone, you then don't need someone to earn your trust again. You don't need someone to, to put together the broken pieces that someone else caused in another relationship. It is your job to do that for yourself. And I know it sucks because you not, might not be responsible for the pain that someone caused you, but your ex isn't going to put the pieces back together. So it's you or no one. That's, that's, there are your options. So it's going to have to be you. It sucks, but that's just the truth. It's the truth of the matter. Your ex is gone, out of the picture, goodbye. They're off living their best life, whatever. None of your business what your ex is doing now, but they're not going to come crawling back and try and fix what they broke, okay? You have to do that. No future partner should be uh, responsible for that either. That's not fair. It is your life, it is your happiness, and it is completely your responsibility. You are responsible for your own feelings. Take as much time as you need, but you should be doing that alone. If you can't do that, then you're going to drag these toxic traits into the relationship and you're going to make that partner, your new partner, feel that nothing they do is ever going to be good enough. And again, you fuck the dynamic. You put yourself above them saying, you have to earn this, you have to earn that, you have to earn that. If you've ever been on the receiving end of that, it's 
not fucking fun. It's not fun and it wears you down to a nub. It fucking wears you down and you just think, fuck this. Is it even worth it? Here I am being this great person, this great partner, and they don't trust me because some fuckwit in the past cheated on them. That is so unfair. It's beyond comprehension. And if you're doing that to somebody, you need to really reconsider if you are in a position where you can even be in a relationship. Again, remember, you are responsible for your own happiness. If you can be truly happy single, then the threat of someone not being faithful or leaving you isn't going to feel like your life is over, okay? You're going to feel like it would be awful if you cheated on me. It would be awful if we had to break up because I really like you or I love you, but I'm fine, I will be okay and I am capable and there are many other people in this world that I could form a beautiful connection with in future if we don't work out. That is the mentality you want to have when you enter a relationship. You're not going to enter a relationship thinking, I need you to make me happy, you're responsible responsible for my happiness and then once they start making you happy now, you have to keep earning that, you have to keep holding on to that, you have to keep proving, proving, proving because I can't survive without you doing that for me. Ridiculous. Stop putting so much responsibility of your happiness and feelings into the hands of somebody else because then if that relationship breaks down, then you are truly fucked, okay? That's the problem address it and it is all about self-love. So if you're currently in a relationship and you're doing that, and of course I'm not saying break up and go work on yourself, you can stay in the relationship but you need to be doing some serious work on yourself and things that you can do to build up how you view yourself, your capabilities, your independence, how resilient you are, you need to be working on that. Go listen to all my episodes on self-love, self-value, finding your purpose, finding your self-worth, validation, all that shit. Go back and listen to that and start doing that work on yourself and then you're going to be less inclined to put that job on on the shoulders or the hands of your new partner. Number nine, number eight, sorry, number eight. Are you isolating your partner from their friendship group just because you don't love their friends and you think that they have to have the same taste in people that you do, Okay. Sometimes you might be dating somebody and you think that this person's amazing and then you meet their friends and you're like, wow, I'm not a fan of these people. You don't have to like these person's friends, okay? But there's, you've got to be quite understanding of who your partner is friends with. If your partner is friends with people that have vastly, vastly different morals where you notice your partner turns into a different person when they're around them versus when they're with you and you see that it can actually be changing who your partner is for the worst, then okay, you can be talking about that, you can bring that up, you can say, you know, I notice that this is happening, this and that, this and that. But to try and get your partner to choose between their friends and you and to try and isolate your partner from their friendship group is a very toxic thing to do because look at it in reverse. If you are in a situation where you've got your friendship group and you start dating someone and you're very in love, when you're in that honeymoon period, you want to please your partner at all costs. So you're more likely to do something to please your partner and not please your friends, especially in the initial stages of that relationship. So what happens? You end up ditching your friends and then you become super isolated. And then depending on how toxic your ex is, they can continue potentially to isolate and isolate and isolate you from other people, including like colleagues and family and whatever. So looking at it from your perspective, if you are the person doing it, don't 
Paint your partner with the same brush as their friends just because their friends might do things that you disagree with. If their friends do something that you disagree with, it doesn't necessarily mean that your partner is going to do that. For example, you can't say, I don't want you hanging out with John because John cheated on his girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. Like that, what? That's ridiculous. Just because someone's got drama in their own relationship doesn't mean that your partner is going to mirror that behavior and just because someone's got drama or they cheated it doesn't make them a horrible person it makes them a shit boyfriend or girlfriend to who they were dating right so you can't paint the everyone with the same brush it's okay to not be the biggest fan of your partner's friends it's okay to sit out on certain social occasions if you're like I don't really want to be here but don't make your partner choose because that's when you start manipulating your partner emotionally. Emotional manipulation is abuse. It's emotional abuse, okay? So if you don't like the friends and you think that they are changing who your partner is, then 100% that is open for discussion and you talk about it. But if it's purely like, I just don't like that person, you shouldn't be hanging out with them because you know they're dumb or they're this or they're that, that's very toxic. And I had that with my with my ex, he used to fish out all these negative things about people in my life to try and convince me to not want to hang out with them. And then eventually I realized that there was nobody other than, okay, he fair enough, he liked my family, but there was no friend that he was a, a true fan of. So really, if I didn't want to upset him, the best bet would be to pretty much not hang out with anyone. That's, that's fucked. So just be aware and, you know, don't. <laughs> Basically, don't do that. Number nine, second last one. Do you put your partner lower on the list of priorities, a list of your priorities, but expect to be at the top of theirs? This could be with anything and it doesn't make you a bad person. I'm not saying like, do you sit on your, you know, Xbox and, you know, expect your partner to be there for you, but you put the Xbox. I'm talking like, this could be about really nice things. You might be someone that's so close to your family that for you, you're like, family is everything, family is everything, everything comes second, everything comes second. Fine if you feel that way, but then you can't get remotely offended if your partner turns around and decides, okay, I'm second on your list, you're going to be second on mine, okay? You have to eat the shit that you're shoveling. You cannot expect to be higher on someone's list of priorities if you don't place them at the top of your list either. And if you do have a problem with the fact that they're not placing you high enough on their list of priorities, then again, you need to talk about it. You need to say, listen, I'm always, like if, if you're doing it in reverse, you can say, I always put you at the top. I always have you as my priority, yet you never do that for me. And this eventually is going to cause like a, a divide in the relationship. This is eventually going to cause massive problems. Because like I said, there has to be an even playing field. There can't be a warped dynamic. And I have been in a few relationships where ultimately the relationships have ended for different reasons because that dynamic of priorities was skewed. And sometimes for reasons that couldn't be helped. And that's fine. Sometimes it can't be helped. And it doesn't make that person a bad person. But if I'm willing to put someone at the top of the list, then you would expect something similar in return. Now, the last one. And I really hope that people just listen to this carefully. This is for people that have children. If you have kids, you have to understand that your partner will not initially love your children as much as you do. Yes, with time and once they get to know your children, yes, they can love them as much as if it were their own child, depending on the situation, 100%. But you cannot expect that from your partner initially. You love your child unconditionally, but a person, a person walking into the child's life doesn't. 
and it doesn't mean that they dislike your children either. So calm the fuck down. Let's let's not get so like a lot of parents have this, and I'm speaking from experience. So no one fucking don't at me. I'm speaking from experience because I've dated someone with children. You enter the relationship being like you're you're the out the outsider. You enter the relationship and you're instantly expected to just have this unconditional love for these children that you've barely even met. And it's not saying that, of course, be respectful, of course, care, of course, give them their space. But the person that has the children, I understand you're in a tough situation as well because you're like maybe a single parent and this and that, but it's tough on both ends. Don't be the victim thinking it's only tough on you. Someone entering the relationship it's also tough for them. They're working with a very unique dynamic and that dynamic is they're trying to get to know you while there are other people involved. It is difficult for everyone. Don't think that for them they just cruise in and out and it's easy. If that person cares for you, then it's difficult for them. I can tell you right now, it's difficult. And it's actually everyone's trying to navigate this, the children as well. So everybody, the parent, the partner coming into it and the children, everyone is trying to learn and everybody including, of course, your partner coming into it. Everyone needs to be patient, okay? I have been in a situation where, and I've gotten a lot of DMs as well from parents where it's like, oh, if you don't accept them as they are, then you can get fucked. If you don't, like, my kids are perfect. My kids are this, my kids are that. And you're not like, this person's trying. They've never been, a well, maybe, but in a lot of situations, that person may have never parented, never been a parent. They're trying to give the children space while also trying to get to know them. They're trying. It's a very, very new and unique situation to be put in for someone that's never had their own children to enter a dynamic where there are already grown children in the picture. So all I'm saying is that you have to A, be patient, and you've also got to be understanding. Again, it's got to be reciprocal. I expect that your partner should be understanding of you and know that your children are your priority. You can't change that, nor should you, obviously. But the understanding has to go both ways. In my situation, I was fully understanding that the children were the priority and this and that, but he was never understanding to me that if a situation was new and I wanted to discuss it, he would turn around and be like, you know, if if you've got a problem, just leave then, just leave. When I'm trying to navigate and learn about, hey, so in this situation, do we do that? Well, if you've got a problem, just leave then. Why are you with me? Why are you dating me? Leave. Like putting the walls up, attacking when all I'm trying to do is learn and understand. That's very, very harsh on someone that truly – might truly adore you and is trying to do the right thing but doesn't know because they don't have kids of their own. Patience is key in situations like this, hybrid families or, you know, someone that doesn't have kids entering the dynamic. Patience, patience, patience. Do not expect them to love your children as much as you do at the beginning and allow for a natural relationship to occur between your partner and the children. You can set boundaries 100%. You can say, look, I don't want you ever disciplining my child. You can say all that stuff, but you've got to allow for this natural thing to occur and not think that they're going to instantly feel the same way you do because that's just not humanly possible or natural, okay? And then ironically, in my situation, when the relationship ended, I had already formed this incredible bond with the children. Like I'm talking an awesome bond with the children. So not, not only did I have to grieve the relationship with my partner, but I had to grieve the ending of the relationship with the children because I then don't have access, obviously, nor should I, I get it, but I don't have access to those children anymore. So you have to be understanding that you are creating a relationship that's not just with you, but also with your children. And this partner might end up adoring your children if you give them the space and time. And then if the relationship dissolves, that partner ends up suffering like 
twofold or threefold or however many children you have, okay? So it's a very difficult situation and it's difficult for everybody involved, okay? Yes, it's difficult for the parent, but it's difficult for the partner too. Cool. So that is the episode of today. That is all. Hopefully you found that helpful or interesting or maybe you can pass this on to someone else maybe you can slyly pass this on to your partner if they're the ones with the red flags but if yeah because I just got a lot of questions being like I feel like I see myself as the one with the red flags what do you do from that perspective so hopefully I was able to answer some of those questions and hopefully you found that at the very least entertaining anyway love you all so much you guys are the best and I will fucking speak to you later this week. Good times. Remember, as always, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke!